The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he truly is his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison mine and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. That quote is from Pulp Fiction, right? A film directed by our lovely resident director, Quentin Tarantino, from Tennessee. And I don't know if you guys know Quentin Tarantino, but he doesn't seem like a Christian, does he, Rep? Nah, he doesn't. In fact, I would say that uh, he is not at all. Right. Now, next we're going to hear our own interpretation of some of the scripts of his movies. It's very interesting that um, he would allude to the Bible in such a way that technically that wasn't in the Bible. It's not a real verse. It's not a real verse, but it is an allusion to the Bible nonetheless. And that's what we're going to be talking about today on how to read literature like a knight. Bible, as some of us might know, is probably the most published, printed, bought book, at least in the country, and I'm pretty sure in the world. We live in a Christian nation, right? And like, obviously, that's not even that's not even the religion of our nation officially. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But it's pretty obvious to everyone that the basis of our nation was Christianity, and we're still pretty heavily influenced by it, especially where we live here in Mississippi. Yes, and God we trust, I believe, is our nation's motto. Yes, that's true. You see it everywhere. And so it makes sense that a lot of people know it. And so famous authors like to include allusions to it because the whole point of an allusion is for people to get it. And so a biblical allusion is something that everyone can get because the writers want people to understand. Yeah, whether you have a a good firm grasp or just a little bit of a grasp of the Bible, most everybody can pick up on these kind of allusions. One of the things we noticed when we were trying to find short stories to give examples of allusions is that in the book How to Read Literature Like a Professor, my friend Joseph was like, let's talk about how the old man from The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway was a Christ figure. But Joseph, Christ figure is another chapter in the book. And we were like, huh. And then my good friend Brett Smith was like, well, let's use a short story, The yeah. Shawshank Redemption. I did say that. Because, you know, the main character goes through that whole, like, sewage and he comes out, a changed man into the rain. Yeah, after he comes back, he, he goes through the sewer about 300 yards of it. And he comes up literally a legal, legally a changed man as he is uh, different on paper, as no social, and also figuratively as he has now escaped Shawshank and is has freedom that he hasn't felt in many years. Right, which is a pretty clear allusion to baptism in the Quite. Christian tradition. But, interestingly, there's another chapter talking all about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so you start thinking, it's so important... It's in multiple places in this book about how to read literature just like a professor. Quite so. It's so, crazy. It's very important. So if you take The Crucible, for example, obviously that whole book is about you know the Puritan times and the witch trials, which is biblical. But there's a part where Abigail brings girls into the courtroom, and the book reads something like, Abigail brought these girls into the courtroom, and the crowd parted like a sea of Israel around her, which is a reference to the Bible. In Exodus. Right. But people 
who hadn't read the Bible wouldn't have that mental image that that, that reading the Bible just had like, allowed you to have. They'd oh, be like, Israel, seas like don't part. Israel, that's some kind that's of country. That place with crazy, Jerusalem, crazy right? prime minister they got over there. Let's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can see that just by having this basic knowledge of the Bible, this basic biblical fact, you had a very clear visual image of what happened. And that's pretty important to this whole illusion thing. And then, in the Scarlet Letter, you know, there's just all kind. I mean, the whole book's biblical. I mean, it's specifically about a very Puritan town, which is normally what Hawthorne writes about anyway. But some interesting things about the book is that, first of all, Hester bears a very big semblance to a Bible character we've all heard of, Adam. You know, from like Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. Because after Adam gets thrown out of the garden, you know, he like learns through his sin. Much like Hester, after her great sin of sleeping with Arthur Dimsdale, adultery, the Scarlet A, learns through that experience. But a much more niche biblical reference that's just as important to the story relates to the parable of the great pearl, or the pearl of great price. Notice, pearl is the name of Hester's daughter. Rhett, isn't there a Bible verse about that? Yes, there sure is. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, it basically relates back to um, Hester when she gives up literally everything she has uh, for her pearl. Now, her was that on pearl. purpose? Uh, I believe she definitely did not make the decision to have the child. Because it was an accident, yes, right? Yes, it was an accident. So I would say, no, it's not intentional for her at all. Yeah, it is interesting because she sacrifices everything and she gets her pearl, her pearl of great price. And pearl really is like a light into Hester's world. It's like a beacon against the sin almost, which is very interesting. And I think Hawthorne really nailed that illusion there. Something no one would have gotten if we don't have the Bible and the Bible literacy that most Americans have today. Moving on to the third section of our podcast featuring biblical irony and its important in literary works, I'm going to start with one work that we all read in Miss Mole's class, or should I say pretended to read while we slept. Ha! Can I get a laugh track on that? <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, I'm just kidding, of course. We were all very much awake when we were reading The Riveting Tale by Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie. Now, Tennessee Williams had a very interesting life. He grew up in a fairly conservative religious family, but he was homosexual. Now, as we all know, those things don't necessarily mix too well, especially not in that time period, and it didn't for Tennessee Williams. And so you'll find in a lot of his work there's some kind of, like, bitterness against religion in some ways. There's an example of uh, biblical irony when Jim comes home, his mother questions where he's been, and he replies saying that he's been to the movies, and while he was there he saw a magician. And that magician uh, turned water to wine, wine to beer, and beer to whiskey. Yeah, and, you know, we all know that Bible part where Jesus turns water into wine, you know? But he very clearly didn't turn that wine into beer and that beer into whiskey. Now, Jim's drunk when he says this, and he's also fighting back, much like Tennessee Williams did, against his mother's overbearing, like, superness. But I think that line kind of shows Williams' attitude towards religion, you know? I think without understanding that biblical irony that happens in that, I mean, admittedly small part of the story, you lose a whole lot of Tennessee Williams' personal life coming through. And that has been it for this episode of How to Read Literature Like a Knight. 
Uh, stay tuned for the next chapter. Not that it will be as good as ours. Ha ha. Because we're the best. This sounds awkward.